Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Football 365. All football managers are actors, and Brendan Rodgers is currently playing the role of innocent bystander. Of course, it's nice to win eight on the bounce. Of course, it's good to have a new long-term contract. Job security signals ambition. But Leicester know their place. They can't be expected to produce another miracle. Runners-up, at best, to Liverpool, who appear to have seen off Manchester City. Believe that fairy story? No chance. <laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, it's a time for miracles, isn't it? Around about <laughs> time of the year. So why not Leicester? You know, Brendan Rodgers did this before, launched a title challenge with a Liverpool side that had finished seventh the previous season. Now, at that time, of course, they were spearheaded by the mercurial... Luis Suarez. Uh, this time they're spearheaded by Jamie Vardy, but they've also got a wonderfully balanced side. They've got defensive strength, midfield creativity, and obviously that cutting edge out front. And I tell you an interesting, I, uh, bizarrely, I sat with Jamie Vardy last Thursday at the Pride of Sport Awards for the Daily Mirror, him and his wife, and, and we, we talked about, you know, it was just general chat, you know, no notepads or anything like that. But he came across very relaxed, very easygoing, very, it is what it is, you know. He's enjoying his football, and that's the platform for their title challenge. They are enjoying their football, they're enjoying playing together. There is no pressure on them, largely because you're asking the question. You're not saying they are there and they are challengers. You're saying, is there a title challenge? <clears throat> and that lack of belief in Leicester ironically, are spurring them on. They can float under the radar, just like Spurs did when they challenged in the year that Leicester went on to win it. And just like Liverpool did in that year under Brendan Rodgers. Teams like to float under the radar so that everyone is gushing about the side in front and they can just go about their business. Leicester play Liverpool on Boxing Day. That game will be a real blockbuster because mm. if Leicester can pinch a win in, it's at the king power, then suddenly that gap is a much more manageable amount and we will have a title race on. Yeah, Leicester have picked up 55 points since he was appointed in early March. That's only bettered by Liverpool and, and Manchester City. When you look at Brendan Rodgers, how have you seen him develop as both as an individual and as a football manager and coach? 
As an individual, Mike, probably he's become a little more understated. I think, I mean, this may be terribly unfair, but I think that sort of one of the hindrances for Brendan Rodgers the first time round at Liverpool was the spotlight which shines in the club and the sort of his reaction to that spotlight. I don't want to make it sound personal or unkind, but I think there were times when he was found out by that. There was a, sort of, there were wrinkles in his personality which didn't suit a club of that size. A bit too much brand building? I don't think it was intentional. I wouldn't call it brand building because I don't think it was, there was any rhyme or reason behind it. I think it was just him coming out a little bit too much, a little bit too much Brendan. That's, you know, that's a weird thing to say. But the difference with Leicester is that Leicester, Leicester exists in a different part of the hierarchy. So we've already covered this really inadvertently. Leicester City are not supposed to exist in the parts of the Premier League that they currently inhabit. And so Brendan is, it's a, it's a more laid back version of him. And I, I think there's, I mean, as, as a football manager, I don't think there's been that much evolution because he is what he was the first time round. He has built a football team out of neat possession football. He reacts particularly well to young, pliable players. One of the reasons why this was such a, a smart appointment in the first place was because he inherited arguably the richest crop of young players in the country. Players who, had he been at the club, he'd have probably almost handpicked to play for him. I'm thinking someone like Madison, of course, and you know, Vardy compliments the sort of the, the chances that that group of players creates, but also Damari Gray, who I think is, is still one of the great unrealized talents in the country, someone who could still very definitely have an England future, but also Harvey Barnes, Wilfred and Didi at the base of that midfield. This is a really lovely group of players who like the ball on the floor and who play, who don't need to be coached towards Brendan Rodgers' philosophy too much. It's, it's natural to them. And so it's, there's a perfect synergy there. There's lots of similarities as well about the, the, between this side and, and the side that obviously did launch that title challenge, not least in, some, in the way that some of their goals were constructed. Yeah. That ball over the top to get yes. defenders running back to their own goal and Vardy running onto it and slotting it past the goalkeeper. You know, they, they, they are a side. We all said after they lost Mares and particularly Canty, this yeah. would never come again for them. Mm. Already the way they're playing and the consistency that they're building out, it looks like they could be in for at least Champions League football. And I'm never of the opinion that a title race could be over in December. Never. I just, I just don't see it, well, however big the gap is. Because we've seen it too yeah. many times mm. where big gaps get whittled down to nothing. You know, Liverpool had that healthy gap going into in, in January ahead of the game against City, and City wiped it out. It can be done. And, you know, sorry, sir. No, no, Darren, I was just going to say, actually, you know what, Leicester as a club are, are due great credit for rebuilding their defence because, quite rightly, we all thought post Mares, post Kante, it's not going to be possible to return to that level. But even before Brendan Rodgers got there, so in comes Pereira, Chilwell was a, an academy graduate, you know, signing someone like Johnny Evans, whose stock had really fallen mm. when he was he, at West He's Rock. been very quietly pivotal, hasn't he? He's been outstanding. He's been outstanding. I can't pronounce his defensive partner's <laughs> name. So Yenchi, I'm going to get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, he's been terrific. Like, he's, he has been, for me, one of the best defenders in the league this season. And that's been one of the best bits of business as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. No, it's £75 million isn't enough for Harry Maguire. £85 million not. 85 that will do. Oh, and by the way, we've got someone else coming. And he's already so we don't even need to. Yeah, he's and already He was... Yeah, I mean, he's been terrific. I remember seeing him at Stamford Bridge early in the season. He just, he looks like a, he doesn't physically look like a footballer, but he is. He's, he's happy with the ball at his feet and he can play out. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very good defence. You that. know what's interesting as well, Seb? I, I, I remember when Johnny Evans was linked with Arsenal. And Arsenal fans turned it's their noses at exactly, him. Exactly, exactly. Big time. Yep. Mm. 
how they could do with his leadership now, how they could do with somebody who yeah, reads the go- game as well as him now. Doesn't the same principle apply, you know, we're going to talk later on about the whole managerial mayhem that's going on at the moment, that Brendan Rodgers, OK, he's got his new five-and-a-half-year contract, but he doesn't need to go anywhere, does he? <coughs> I suppose, uh, under normal conditions, if you were to look at, it, look at the situation dispassionately and to look at a job opening at Arsenal then there's an appeal there. But it's, it's also, it, it's about how a manager prospers is about the situation that they find themselves in. So it's not about the nature of the club. It's not about the size of the opportunity. It's about the conditions that exist to multiply their effect. And what, what we've just said about Brendan Rodgers is, is a perfect example. You go in and it's not, a, it's not a situation of a manager having to come in and then perform major surgery over two, maybe even three transfer windows. He comes in and he inherits the pieces he needs to succeed. That doesn't exist at Arsenal. No. I would extend this to you know, Nuno Espirito Santo from Wolves. Like, what is the argument there for saying that you should abandon something which has helped you establish a reputation for the sake of, with the greatest respect, a, a club which is a little bit of a circus at the moment yeah. in every aspect, not just the first team, but the hysteria around it, the ownership, the, the vagaries around you know, what the intentions are of, the, of, of that, that ownership group. The fan base. I wouldn't, didn't want to say it as a Tottenham fan, but yes, absolutely, the fan base, it's, it's difficult. You go in and it's not a club where you have the opportunity to construct, really. It's a, you go in and you achieve or you get Unai emery <laughs> didn't just verb Unai Emery, but you, 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 know, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's, it's, a, it's very difficult. It's also a mighty gamble for someone like Brendan Rodgers, who is where he is in the league and whose reputation has been almost completely rehabilitated, to then say... I'm going to abandon this before it's really reached its apex mm-hmm. and I'm going to trade it in for something which season by season becomes a more and more difficult job. Yeah, I look at I look at Leicester. I see John Rudkin, I see Susan Wheeler, yeah. I see the recruitment, I see the, the clear plan, the joined up thinking. I look at players like Ndidi who were given time to mature. Sunju, as we say, yeah. bought way, way before the point at which they sold Kane. Demarai Gray, you know, disaffected for a little while because they couldn't get regular first-team football, encouraged to believe in a plan by Rodgers. The style of play, the identity that the team have, the way that they are able to maintain a high level of confidence but not allow it to bubble over into arrogance. Mm. Uh, There are so many things that contribute to the consistency that Leicester as a football club have, not just on the pitch but off it as well. Well, Let's look at the perspective perspective of Liverpool's excellence. Well, it's not excellence, it's dominance, isn't it? You know, dropped two points since March, whenever it was. You're in a situation where is it 33 unbeaten, records going all over the place, they have the look. I know they've been struggling mm. to get across the line in a couple of recent games. They have the look of the invincible. Well, go back to what you just said a second ago. You know they've been struggling to get over the line in the last couple of games, but they did it, yeah. and that's yeah. the mark of champions. With, with seven changes against Bournemouth, with 16 separate players scoring goals, it is a squad effort. Absolutely, and I think when you look at the stats, 24 games out of the last 25 won. But in that stat, which was even as, as much impressive as, as the original one, 23 of those games have scored two or more goals. So they are a side with goal potential, as you say, 16 different scorers. I mean, they are a side 
primed to score goals, primed to find a way through, whether it's by creative flair, whether it's through route one, whether it's through sheer bloody-mindedness. They are a side primed to score goals. And I think the consistency that they've built up is all the more impressive considering what they did last season. Because so often teams have that big win the previous campaign and it goes to their heads and they dine out on it and they put it to bed and they came back and they said this time we want to win the league and the attitude has reflected the leadership because that's what Klopp wants to do when he arrived he said he would get the team the club competitive he said he would restore them to where they were and build that relationship that he had with the Dortmund players and fans that's exactly what he's done now because not only has he earned the respect to the fan base, he's earned the respect to the legends as well. Mm. Uh, and, and, and what he's doing there, for, <laughs> bizarrely, for all the good he's doing on the surface, he's also building for the future as well because you see kids like Curtis Jones coming into the so, th- th- There is a pathway open. Rian Brewster, you know, all the young players now suddenly see it's not just about the guys at the top level. This is a chance, particularly with this little congested period now, for us to maybe make a claim for the first team as well. It's, it's a wonderful run they're on. Because yeah. this is going to be, if they win the league this season, this will become a Liverpool team for the ages and will bear scrutiny with some of the other great teams of the past in the sort of 80s. Now, when you look at those teams, the one thing that the thread that runs through them is the, the closeness of the bond with the community and almost the emotional intensity of their performances, which reflect that. When you go to Liverpool these days, what do you feel? Frenzy. I'd say frenzy. I think the question about the intimacy of the actual relationship is probably for for people who live on Merseyside. I don't feel, as an outsider, like I'm equipped to answer that properly because I don't don't know what it is. Liverpool's successful football team and the economic deprivation in Liverpool have been experienced by people who live in that part of the world and I'm I feel very much an outsider to that but that's a good thing because that's really in a way how it should feel like you should feel like someone that's that's looking in on somebody else's relationship when you go to a football club and perhaps that's even the the the, the highest compliment I can pay Jurgen Klopp is that he's created that I'm not old enough to remember or to have seen the great Liverpool teams of the past but that's how I imagine it felt there it's a very pure sense of identity at Anfield and actually, that, that, that exists on the road too. Liverpool have always taken a lot of supporters away with them. And that's there, that, that, that presence is, is, exists wherever they go, whether it be Bournemouth this weekend or anywhere else. And I think that's... Um, I don't really see that anywhere else in the country at the moment, which is really interesting. And it's, a, um, it's actually it's testament to the power of communication and the, the value of not just a, a technical leader in Jurgen Klopp, but someone who has that kind of... That, and that gravity, that magnetism to them, that that sort of that acquires almost a, a, a social value over time. It's very, very interesting. Mm. If a, a blip is going to come, Darren, do you think it might come in Europe? Now, on Tuesday, you know, they're in Salzburg for the Red Bull game. They need a point to qualify for the knockout stages. They've got the League Cup, which is going to be with the kids and the reserves. Is Europe almost... Being, being looked at as secondary to, to the Premier League? Yes, in my opinion, because I think it would be wonderful to defend it, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. <coughs> it would if they didn't win the league from the commanding position they have at the moment. Mm. I think the interesting thing about Salzburg is that the bad news is they've only lost twice all season. 
the good news is that Liverpool beat them on one of those occasions, mm-hmm. 4-3. So from our point of view, if it's anything like that game, it should be a barnstormer. But also they should feel fairly confident about going there and at least getting that point. But I, I think, and it's only a personal view, that they are focused on the Premier League. They haven't won it for so long. It would mean so much. There would be that... The celebrations wouldn't just encompass football because success on Merseyside, on the red half of Merseyside, isn't just about the trophy. It's about all the the social things that have happened since all of the heartbreak, all of the tears, all of the stresses, all of the unity in the face of political adversity. There are so many things that would... that for which winning the league would be a catharsis in many respects. So many managers that have tried and failed, so many players that have given their all, so many superstar players that have been in and out of the squad, missing out. You know, you look at Gerrard, you know, a legend of the club who never lifted the Premier League, for example. Winning the league at Liverpool, it seems perverse to say it, but it's so much more than winning the trophy. Mm. It, it it symbolises yeah. the success that they once had, that a generation once had, that they could bring back. And if they were to win it again, I would reckon they would retain it. I, I think they'd have more chance of retaining a Premier League than they would a Champions League. Okay. They resume in the Premier League on Saturday. Uh, it's the BT Sport game, uh, Watford going to Anfield. Mm-hmm. Um, the first game in full charge for Nigel Pearson. What do you make of that appointment? It depends how it's been made. I mean, if this is a the beginning of a new era, then I'm intrigued by it because I think I think Nigel Pearson was done up slightly unfairly last time round. I mean, obviously the circumstances would led to his his departure from Leicester another issue, but I think he's a good coach. I also think that one of his core skills is the ability to purge a, a squad of players who aren't really committed to the cause, and I'd argue that's one of Watford's great problems at the moment. Watching them last season was a joy at times, even if if it was slightly reckless football, even if you could see that it wasn't really going to be sustainable long term. I expect a 4-4-2 in their future. (laughs) And I expect sort of, you know, him to, if he needs to, to to tailor that, to change it. If if we go back to the season when Leicester escaped relegation, when, you know, the season before they won the championship, I mean, there was even a late in the season they were playing a, a back three you will experiment with things which aren't working and so what you have at Watford is a is a big group of players who are underperforming and there is a lot of talent in that in that, in that side they should no, be absolutely nowhere near the, the bottom of the table at the moment and then you have a manager who will even to his own detriment at times change and tailor and tweak until he finds a solution which works so I think it's a very smart appointment however I don't want to see Watford go continue this recent trend that I want to see managers last two seasons because they've reverted themselves back to where they were at the beginning of this cycle where they become the club who exist on a on on the basis of of performing short and sharp shocks to to sort of to 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 galvanize the team and I want to see continuity back there. I agree I'm fascinated as well by the fact that it's his first full game in charge I'm a big believer in if you sign a contract to manage a club the first game is the next game 
it shouldn't you you know what's this standing in you're not second in the league you're bottom of the table yeah, sitting in the stand. get to work yeah. you know yeah. I, I think if I if you, say you sign to work for McDonald's and you think I'll just sit <laughs> and have my big I want to see how the process works I want to see you know, how it evaluate works. all the people that are going to undermine in the next few weeks you know how <laughs> Who am I going to dislike? Who am I, who, who am I going to, who, who am I going to backstab? Yeah. Where do you keep the vanilla milkshake, you know? For goodness sake, you're work. bottom of the league, get, get to, to work. work. Yeah. Go and yeah, touch. Yeah. Like, what is Hayden Mullins? I mean, listen, I don't mind. If they, if they want to, if maybe they're grooming him long term, whatever. But you should be in the dugout, you know? Yeah, and but that's, that's convention, isn't it? It's convention. Oh, well, I'm going to sit, sit, sit this one out. And but Mike, you see what I'm saying? Oh, if, yeah, you're, if, you're, yeah. if you're second in the league, third, if you're pushing for a Champions League place, you're in a decent position, you're bottom of the league. Get to work. Okay, you know what? And also, Darren's right, because that's a winnable fixture. I know Palace has been playing well, but that was three points to be taken, and which they could have taken. Yeah. I mean, it always reminds you of... Um, of Tim Sherwood's first game in charge of Tottenham, <laughs> his first league game in charge of Tottenham, where he started at, it was at, it was at Southampton. So he started sitting in the, the top of the stand at St Mary's and then Tottenham were two down with him, I don't know, you know, whatever. And he, he, the, the, the cameras actually caught him running down the, the, the concourse to... Yeah. I didn't feel very good about my club um, yeah. on that day. But see, the problem, the problem for, for, Peer, uh, for Nigel Pearson and for Watford is that this model of hiring and firing has worked for a while, but I think it's created within that dressing room a group of people who see the manager as the transitional one, yeah. the caretaker one, the supply teacher. You know, we're going to be here longer than you. Mm. And the more they keep sacking people that they're bringing but in... if you've got a four-year contract as a player and you've got your new manager, in inverted commas, has just been given a contract to the end of the season, which is what Nigel Pearson has got, how are you going to think? And I, I know for a fact that a couple of other managers turned that job down precisely for that reason, because they didn't want a job until the end of the season. If you're going to give me the job, give me a two-year deal, three-year deal, whatever. But you cannot go in there and command authority if you're only there until the end of the season, because the players know they are more powerful than you, and you need to go in there and get players who aren't doing their jobs to do them. And if they don't do them, they're out of the team. So... I think that contract till the end of the season says to the manager, the club has sent to the manager, these are good players, you've got to make it work or you're gone as well. We're trying stuff and if it doesn't work, you're gone. I, I, just, I think they're going to get relegated. But it is a fashion business management. You look at Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe's still being mentioned in dispatches elsewhere around the league. Yeah. Five defeats on the bounce. Is the halo slipping? And should he get out of Bournemouth ASAP. I, I don't know whether it's a halo. I think it's been... I, I think the, the analysis of what he is has been quite selective. For me, Eddie Howe is someone that we praise an awful lot when he wins. When he loses, it's only Bournemouth, so we don't really have to write about it. It's that. I don't think he's become a bad manager. I just think that it's exposed some naiveties within his, his, his skill set uh, and some, some sort of inefficiencies. I remember at the beginning of the season when I saw their transfer business, I remember thinking, this is the year they get that defence sorted because there are upgrades in every position. Ahead of them, they brought in someone like Philip Billing, who's a really solid defensive midfielder. I think he's an excellent player, by the way. And yet we have this situation every year with Bournemouth where they have this big, long slump in the winter and we ignore it for the reasons we discussed. And then when Eddie Howe corrects it, sometimes it's sometime in January or February, and they go on a run which puts them back into mid-table and makes them non-newsworthy again. Eddie Howe for England. Eddie Howe for England, Eddie Howe for Arsenal, Eddie Howe for Everton. 
I don't know whether he should get out of Bournemouth ASAP because where, where are you putting him? Are you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you put him in, a, in a, an Arsenal-type situation, you expose him to the absolute opposite of what he's had so far, which is ultimate scrutiny, which is nine-day, 24-7, boom-bust, binary analysis of everything. If you put him at Everton, it's a you, 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 you transplant him into a world of dysfunction. Now, I'd argue that what's worked at Bournemouth is relative calm. Now, no matter how bad the form is, or no matter how, how illustrious the opponent they knock over may be, it's never to... You never, you never hear a lot of hyperbole out of Bournemouth. Okay, maybe you hear some attracted to Eddie Howe from outside, but it doesn't come from inside the club. There is never a sense that that is a club that thinks that they are more than what they are or less than what they are. They are a very... They're just a very even-pulsed football club. And, and I... I'm, it, it goes back to what we said about situations. I, I would hesitate in removing someone from a, a work scenario which, which accentuates their abilities. I agree with that. I, I was at their game last week at Crystal Palace and they were, they were poor. They were poor. Yeah. They were, there was not enough energy, no, no intensity. Palace had a man sent off. Bournemouth couldn't take advantage. They, they, were, they were poor. But, you know, going into the weekend game against Liverpool, they had eight players missing and that was before Callum Wilson and Nathan Aki came off injured. After Ake came off, Liverpool scored basically with a ball that Ake would have cut out had he still been on the pitch. Mm. So they have a horrendous run of injuries and the players that have stepping into the breach don't have enough about them, sadly. They're at Chelsea on Saturday. They're probably good opponents for Chelsea as they are at the moment. First off, Chelsea have to beat Lille. Mm. I suppose when you look at it from Frank Lampard's point of view, he got the he got the gist that this reality check was coming one win in five, didn't he? Mm, yeah, he did. He did. He knew it was coming, and he knew, or he knows that there'll be people who will now be screaming for him to go into the transfer market now that the ban's mm-hmm. been lifted, and to buy players. And this will be a test of how much power he has at the club now. Him and Jody Morris, because Jody Morris is a big champion of those young kids, the kids their early twenties, those 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 players, academy. And, and Lampard did as well. And ahead of, we've talked about this before, ahead of a Man United game, he said, I have total faith in these players. I don't care whether they get stuffed or whether they, they do well. I've got total faith. And of course, they lost 4-0. And everyone wrote them off and they were still very, very supportive of them. And when Jose Mourinho said, I'm worried about the Chelsea team, which obviously appeared fairly pressing at that point, Jody Morris went on social media and had a little pop. But Mourinho's turned out to be right in so much as the dip was going to come and the dip is here. But I think that Bournemouth is a, is a great game for them maybe to get their confidence back and their goals back. If they are going to get someone in, I think it would be at the back and I think it would be a support striker for Tammy Abraham. But I think that they should continue with you know giving chances to the players that they have because those players are going to be superstars for them if they keep their faith in them. Because it's all very, very well to generate headlines about we're going to spend 150 million on X or Y. But if you've got a culture that you're creating, it's a very delicate process and you could just blow the whole thing up, couldn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I also think there's a, there's a big burden on the supporters now because the ban as it was, I think a lot of people just assume this is, a, this is not a throwaway season, but it's, a, it's one which exists outside the usual realities of Chelsea. Now all of a sudden that's changed and there are a few clouds in the sky, Mike. Like there was um, 
I know social media is not really the basis upon which to form judgments for fan bases, but after the West Ham game, Mason Mount was getting quite a lot of abuse on Twitter, and I just think that's very short-sighted. What is all that about? Superb footballer who is a really likable young man as well. That made me sound so old. <laughs> <laughs> likable young man. I sound like my grandfather. <laughs> you tell it. <laughs> At least I pulled back yes. from the brink. <laughs> but these these are that, that, that's such a. It's been such a good news story. And Mount Abraham's a lovely story because he, again, he's such a likable guy um, and he works so hard and he deserves the success. And you just think, up until a couple of weeks ago, I think everyone bought into that. It was a kind of, well, if we don't challenge for a title, that's, that's okay. If we don't win anything, that's okay because we're going to take a little bit of pride in what we are. It reminds me of uh, the early Pochettino seasons at Tottenham. You know, with players like Ryan Mason, Harry Kane, you know, Andros Townsend for a little bit. But all of a sudden, you know, transfer ban is reduced. Numbers like £150 million start leaking into the media. All of a sudden, we're talking about what could happen with this player and that one and, and where the gaps in this team are. And so you wonder, OK, the next time Tammy Abraham misses a chance in a big game, does he get the, the, the round of applause or do you hear the chuntering in the stands? Ditto Mason Mount, the same as for just for someone like Fikio Tomori, who I think has been great. What about him, who's playing in a little bit of a, a shaky defence, which is probably in a state of transition. They need a couple of new fullbacks, I'd say. So you know, that's a that's well, a. Rich James is going to be fine, I think. On the I hope side, so. of, yeah. of, I think maybe a uh, left back they they need for sure. I'd also say maybe the goalkeeper. I, I'm not I'm not sold on the goalkeeper. I've never been sold on it. I just think he's yeah. he's either I, I, I see him either making excellent saves or you know. Or, or doing things which just look strange, which aren't necessarily mistakes, but which look odd. Like the, the second Calvert-Lewin goal from, from Goodison Park just looks weird. So I want to see how the fans react to this, Mike. Like, are you going to... What's your view, sorry, Seb, on, on Jadon Sancho? Going, you know, that, the talk that Chelsea... Because I, I think if Jadon Sancho goes in, it's exactly what you said. You've got young players pushing to come through, thinking, hang on a minute. But if you're Callum hudson you think? what do you think about that then? With the Jadon Sancho thing specifically, I ideally love him to stay where he is. I'm, That's I, not going to happen. It's not going to happen because happen. he hasn't been treated right by Dortmund. I think we know this. I don't really agree with how he's he's been. It seemed to have started, you know, after that Bayern Munich game. It just seemed like all of a sudden the last couple of years of his form and his contribution, his growth seemed to matter. Not a job. Well, you had a coach under pressure who needed a diversion. Which I just I don't like that. I think this is a, a young man who is growing into his career, who's taken a significant risk to leave his home country, to embrace a new culture, to learn a new language, and you pile on because you want to save his, your, your own job. Maybe that's a little bit dramatic, but I don't like the dynamics of that situation. Mm-hmm. I don't mind where Jaden Sancho goes next as long as he gets to play. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters to me because I think he is a, he is a special, special footballer. If that's Chelsea, if, if uh, Darren touched on it earlier, like, if Frank Lampard's agenda wins out here, if he's the most important voice in the conversation, I would want a Sancho type to work under a manager like that who would protect him from his dips of form, who wouldn't say, right, every missed pass you make is going to cost you three games on the bench. Mm-hmm. You need a manager like that at his age because he's going to dip. You know, Hudson-Odoi did. Hudson-Odoi's a terrific footballer, but he's had a little bit of a, a plateau in the last few weeks. But he works under a manager who isn't going to use that against him. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. Yeah. You mentioned Jose Mourinho earlier, Darren. I get the sense that he's very much targeting Chelsea for that top four place yeah. for Spurs. When you when you look at the way he's behaving, he's ticking off little boxes. <laughs> you know, he's giving Troy Parrott the match ball on Saturday. 
Oh, I really love my He's young hugging players. Hugging a ball boy inside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a ball and, boy's yeah, at the moment. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> but when you look at Mourinho, is he getting it right? I think yes, because already, uh, I, I think Spurs fans will never forget what Pochettino's done over the last four or five years. But they are they are buying into Mourinho. They are, I mean, a five nil win, clean sheet, after all the defensive problems that they've had recently is is a really really good way to start getting people on board and if you can get a run of goals out of Sissoko the second game in which he scored at the weekend then that's a bonus but Son Heung-min has always been outstanding so you know I've watched him for many years and I think Son Heung-min is, doesn't get the credit he deserves but I think he has he's done the charm offensive He's done the, um, you know, the, the Spurs, wonderful club, wonderful stadium. I've always respected them. I love the fans. I'm totally wedded to Chelsea, uh, to Spurs. <laughs> <I think. laughs> Actually, that was... <laughs> nice and Freudian, that, wasn't it? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but you could imagine that happening, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, now it's about... The, the ambitions and, and, and how he gets to improve that side. And they already look to be motivated. That currency that he's got in the bank of winning things has already got players on side because they know that he's on the way to doing things. It hasn't gone all his own way, of course, because Ericsson says, I still don't want to say I want to go and experience a new culture. But I, I, I think that he has, as you, as you say, done all the things we, we expect him to do. And now you can see genuine progress in the way that they play their football. Mm. Let's see if it continues. They've got a dead rubber this week, which they're very fortunate to have. Mm. And we'll see maybe the Oliver Skips and Troy Parrots and Cessignon Ryan Sessegnons of this world, yeah, yeah, playing that game so that he can have a look in there. But maybe he could create that hunger. Maybe he could have them pushing for first-team places if they put in good performances in midweek. It's a real bonus for him. And, I mean, I was at the last European game. They had to get something from that match because they did not want to be going into the final couple of games trying to get results. Obviously, Bayern Munich, you know, given that they were ripped apart in London, they didn't want to be going there trying to get a result there. But I think certainly as far as Mourinho is concerned, it's looking positive at Spurs. Yeah. So it was a pretty brutal business, the replacement of Pochettino. Pochettino's coming back to London, so the circus will will basically speed up over the next week or so. Yeah. Um Let's just look at two clubs who are, st- are searching for, for new managers. Arsenal, but we'll start with Everton. What you saw on Saturday in that defeat of Chelsea was a team reverting to a sort of club stereotype, dogs of war, 37 tackles, unheard of in, in, in the Premier League this season. And you had a, the most unmanagerial manager that you could have, Duncan Ferguson, Ferguson, in terms of his character, behaving as if he was a showman born. Can a club sustain itself through that sort of emotion? Because it was fantastic to watch. No, it has a half-life. I mean, I, I, it sounds so joyless, but it does. It's exactly what Everton need at the moment, because they've been, if you think back to their recent managerial history, Marco Silva, Ronald Koeman, Sam Allardyce, maybe not Allardyce, but it's been kind of the era of the technocrat. It's been, been sort of dispassionate management. So maybe the, um, this has been a bomb. Uh, Ferguson, I don't know what he is as a manager. I don't know how to technically define him. Still frightens me now, actually, 20 years later, the memories of him as a player. But it was, it was I think what was interesting, actually, if you, if you um, 
listening back to the Dominic Calvert-Lewin interview at Full Time, when he talked about his relationship with Ferguson specifically, I think that was a little bit of a window into what he can offer certain players and what his virtues are as an assistant or as a first-team coach. But I don't think you can sustain a Premier League football club, one that sort of aspires to fifth, sixth place every season-ish, maybe optimistically, but that sort of area of the table, I don't think that can be sustained on emotion alone. Which isn't to say that Duncan Ferguson shouldn't have the job, it's just that we don't know what he is and and we're, we're yet to kind of stake out the, the parameters of his skill set. So yeah, we'll that, see. That's the first thing we disagree on because I think as far as Ferguson is concerned, as far as Everton are concerned, they want the icing on the cake without any cake underneath. <laughs> you know, yeah. They, yeah. they want a, 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 a high-line, top-level manager to spend all the money they have. But, but it's, it's random, though, isn't it? It's the the, so the names that are being linked are just so diverse. And that tells you that within the boardroom, there are people just throwing names about and thinking, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. You know and that, that's not a plan for any, any those names club. strike you as being credible? No. Okay. No, oh, not no, at the moment. River Plate. And, and, and like this, that. Is, this is the thing that, that what, where I contend with, with you, Seb. I think that what Ferguson brings is the basic ingredient any successful team needs. It's hard work. Yep. And I when you that. saw that team on Saturday, statistically, they worked harder than they have for years. I think it was 10 years. There you go. Now, for me, if he can get that on a week-to-week basis from those players who know what he's about, suddenly you've got a team that's got an identity. You know, suddenly you've got that a team agree. that's going to let players, opposition players, settle on the ball that is going to be able to... You know, he's turning Calvert-Lewin into a striker, a real combative, combustible striker. You know, he's got the intensity from the defence. He's got the players in midfield pressing hard. Then you can start to put the icing on the cake and, and, and start to maybe look for a longer-term plan. But for the rest of the season, at the very least, I would stick with, with Ferguson and see if he can do that on a regular basis. I think, I, think, I mean, actually, I agree with most of that. It's just that my reservations are in two areas. Firstly, how much of this is it's the old syndrome of, he's not Marco Silva. And that is good news because it didn't seem as if players were... The hard work indicates something very negative about Marcus Silva's relationship with those players. And it's something which appears at football clubs time and time again. Yes. So that's one issue. The second is evidence transfer policy. Even since Marcel Brands came into the club as director of football, technical director, whatever you want to define him, it's, they are still that club that want to be paying large fees for players who probably come from areas which are currently above their station. Instead of an Andre Gomez type player, you know, a, a, you're coming from Barcelona to play for an Everton. That is a little bit of a quantum leap in reverse. Mm. Now, if you, have a, if you have a Ferguson type figure in there and these ideas above his station, you know, the technical director's plotting, 40 million pound signings there, 50 million pound signings there, which is unusual for, in the context of Everton's general history, but very much their modern trend. How did how does how do those two things combine? How is that how does that become coherent? And I, th- they may well do. I just don't I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's there's a compatibility there yet. Yeah. Let's look at uh, Arsenal, Darren, if we could. You have there the same sort of scenario. Club legend, Freddie Lundberg. Two games. He looks as spent force already. Again, Mikel Arteta is being linked very strongly. Do you think it's time for him to make his move? I'm fascinated by the Mikel Arteta thing. You know, and, and I do feel like the only person who's saying the Emperor's not wearing any clothes. But <laughs> there is no... What, what is it about Arteta that tells you he's going to be a success, except for the fact that he's worked with Pep Guardiola? 
you know, I, I, I must, I must be missing something. I agree. You know, but there is not one per, people. Say, oh well, he's done this. What has he done? I, I don't see what he's done, and I think he's an idea. He's an idea, he's an idea. exactly. Yeah. You, he reminds me of those players Spurs used to get linked with, and then all the fans were upset because they never signed him and they'd never seen him play. But you know, the idea <laughs> of getting the player was better than the actual player, and that's what strikes me about Arteta. I just, you know, I mean, it's it's a good segue because at least when I look at Ferguson's Everton side, I see players that want to run through brick walls yeah. for him. Yeah. Straight away, you look at the intensity, the desire, the work rate, the passion. And I know, you know, we, we, we're, we're, we are well past the idea that passion basically rules everything because you've got to have a plan. But he did have a plan. He did know how to nullify the, the attacking threat from, from Chelsea. And he did know how to converge in midfield on the creative threats as well. There was a lot to like about what he did. There is a lot, lot to like about what Lundberg's doing. And you're right to suggest that maybe it is time for Arsenal to look elsewhere because Lundberg is, 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 a, is a legend, but no more. You know, it didn't look to me, the body language from those Arsenal players. I knew that although Norwich are not that great defensively, they're better than Arsenal. You know, yeah. they'll score against Arsenal. And here's the thing. I think that if they're going to get somebody else in, they've got to do maybe a, similar to Everton. Forget the idea of, of a fantasy at the moment and get someone who's going to get those players back to doing hard work because there was a complacency running through Arsenal from the very top to the very bottom. The younger players aren't working hard enough. The established first-team players are disillusioned. The top-line players are looking for an exit strategy. There is a real worrying complacency running through that entire club. OK, let's look at another club with Arteta in mind as well, Manchester City. Yeah. Is this the moment now? They, they seem to lack a certain mentality for big games at the moment, Manchester City. Yeah. Um, vulnerable to, to pace and a counter-attack. Yet, I've yet to hear any criticism of Pep Guardiola. Is this the time, you know, they've got a, a dead rubber in the Champions League this week, but is this the time after that derby defeat that we have to find out how good he really is? I don't know about that. I don't know if I'd go that strong. I, I, I think it's, I mean, it's just a theory, but I think this is a commitment issue. I think this is, we are coming towards the end of Guardiola at City. I think what we're diagnosing in City at the moment is not, yes, there are sort of isolated issues like, they need a couple of centre-halves, clearly. Left-back situation he's solving, and I'm not sure that Gabriel Jesus is Sergio Aguero's equal. But what I see in City is a lack of beneficial tension. Everything that worked in the past, those kind of those those rigid structures in which they operated on, they're looser. It's very interesting, actually, to watch them in that second half against Man United, where, OK, they, they had a couple of chances, but they didn't really create anything, which is really strange, because one of the most frightening positions you used to be in as a football team is in front at Man City with them coming at you. It was like watching you know, that, 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 first scene, uh, that first scene in, in Saving Private Ryan. It's that. It's absolutely terrifying. I've been there with... with I've, I've watched my own team in that situation. You just... You want everyone to get out alive and, and that, that's, that's all you're hoping for. But City aren't that side anymore. There isn't that same fever about their football. And so I don't think it's about whether Guardiola is good enough. Clearly he is. His record speaks for himself. I'm not someone who doubts him. I find his body of work fascinating. But... I want to know what his future is. What does he want from the remaining time on his contract at Man City? Where is his mind at? Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think really that's the pivotal question. Which yeah, he turned down Bayern Munich. Um, yeah. they, they wanted to take him. They were mad for him. And he, and he said... Um, sorry, that's a bit... No, no, no. But, but they, they, uh, he says he wants to see out his contract. But I'm, I'm not so sure that the players are convinced about his long-term commitment. Mm. And, and I think it'll be interesting to see in January yeah. whether or not they buy players. Because obviously, if, if he's staying, then he'll invest in the players that, mm. you know, and try to rebuild that side and certainly that defence because they can't continue beyond January in the state that they are. If they don't, then that, it, to me, is a big sign that maybe things could be changing. It's a fickle world, management. Uh, this time last week, we would have, wouldn't really have given Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a price. Is he now being given or, or earned himself the scope to avoid the endless questioning about his potential. <laughs> we'll know that once he is able to get the same kind of work rate, desire and cutting edge against sides outside the top six. Yeah. Because against those sides, United have been poor. Against the sides in the top six, they've been outstanding. And if they can get that kind of result on a regular basis against sides outside the top six, then they're looking at a top four place. And at the levels that we're talking about, that's the metric that you judge managers by, whether they can get the consistency that gets their side into the top four. I, I, I'm not sold just yet. I think they were wonderful on Saturday. I think they were wonderful in midweek. But when they start doing it against the Sheffield Uniteds of, these world, of, of this world and, and the sides in the bottom half of the table, then we can start talking. You're nodding. You're completely, saying, agree, you agree. completely agree. He's always had this in his locker. If you look back at his time at Man United, even when there's poor form, there has always been this uptick in performance against strong sides. It's a it's a false currency. It's a great week. Don't get me wrong, these are two excellent results. I still feel, looking back on them, they were more about the opposition on the night. I think if Tottenham play, I mean, anything like up to their standard, they take at least a point. I think Manchester City gave away goals as well. I mean, they were very naive and it was very uncharacteristic of what we know them to be. So, um, like Darren, I need, to, I need to sit for a bit longer. And against teams, I, I need to sit in Saturday three o'clock kickoffs. Yeah. Not just live games on Sky. Okay. Be all BT. Uh, <laughs> or Amazon. <laughs> what about then, just to finish off, you know, one of the, one of the, obviously, <coughs> the news lines after, after that game, after the derby, was the racial abuse. Mm. Um, or alleged racial abuse, we should say. You spent time last week, Darren, with UEFA uh, President Alexander uh, Sheferin. He was very strident about UEFA's attempts to combat racism within football. Were you convinced or do you need to see a bit more substance from, from the governing bodies? I think we're definitely seen, we have definitely seen enough false storms to know that we need to see substance. Mm. That said, we'll see the first the first point at which we'll know how serious they are is in March when they have their next committee meeting because that's the point at which they intend to induce, uh, introduce more black female members into their uh, uh, ethics and disciplinary committee that decides on all the punishments for clubs and countries around Europe. What was quite interesting in what he said when I said to him, what will it take for you to throw a, a country out of the European Championships, for example, Bulgaria, serial offenders, and he said, hang on a minute, you're all telling me what would it take. When was the last time the Premier League threw someone out of their competition? When was the last time the FA threw someone out of their competition? Serie A. What, what about all these other countries who have serial offenders? And this weekend is a sobering uh, reminder that we are in a mess in this country. 
you know, and we shouldn't even need those reminders because the documentary evidence is there. It's a year since Sterling received abuse at Chelsea. And it, in the last, what, 12, 14 months, we've had a, a banana skin at the pitch owner, a black player at Arsenal. The abuse towards Sterling at Chelsea. Abuse towards Mo Salah at West Ham, the Liverpool player. Incidents at all six of our top clubs. Son young men racially abused at West Ham. There you go. And and so the idea that we we should be hammering we listen, UEFA are no angels and he accepted during the course of our conversation we have issues and we've got to deal with them and I see it and we're not doing enough. And it was you know, it's the first time UEFA have ever accepted it's not working. We've got to do more. We've got to do better. And it was really pleasing to see him say that to me. But I think in this country, where is the person at the top of the FA or the top of the Premier League who would do that interview, who would say, we're not doing enough. The slogans aren't enough. You know, because they are all good people and they all mean well. But the fact is that if you can get a guy and this is what this is part of a wider issue, Mike, because these are not guys stuck in row 10, 12, 20. These are guys emboldened and empowered enough in a televised game to stand in the front row. And that says a lot about this country, that the arrogance of someone, just like the situation at Chelsea, the guy standing in the front row. And it wasn't just Fred who got the abuse at the weekend. Other players, at least two Manchester United players, report receiving sustained racial abuse. So we have in this country a, a, a situation where a year on, we've gone backwards. We haven't made, you know, what, what would you say has improved about the situation in this country? We have sections of our media in this country getting behind somebody who is nakedly, openly racist. And so why should play, people not feel they can go to stadia and behave the way that some people do? Because that's the truth. That's the reality about our industry at the moment. So football, what can it do as part of its contribution to a wider societal issue? Take a real-world approach to these incidents. So forget the, the, the political ramifications of disciplining a club or a fan base properly and put the matter at the forefront, not the sort of the... Darren hit on a really good point there with, with what Seferin said. Who is kicking clubs out of competitions? Why is the response footballified? Why is it kind of modified to make, to appease people within the game? It's like a, whenever one of these instances occurs, I always think the, the governing body responsible issues as much of a, a sanction as it can without antagonising the person it's sanctioning, which I don't pretend to be particularly well-educated on governance, but that doesn't seem to make sense. It's like the proportional, uh, the proportional response episode of The West Wing. Really, you know, well, far back in time when, you know, somebody blows up one thing and somebody else sort of, you know, makes a sort of token gesture to say to the public, yeah, we know it's not right, but we're not going to actually attack it properly. We're not going to, we're not going to do something which is going to make a difference. Now, the other thing that sort of, Saturday night, Darren said about the guy on the front row who feels that emboldened to behave like that. That guy, on the basis of a season ticket holder, knows he's on television. Mm -hmm. Because he's seen himself... Uh, he has denied racist behaviour. Okay. Yeah. Alleged to have mm -hmm. done what we you know, accuse him of. But that is, that is a, a symptom of uh, a game where people don't take the discipline seriously enough for these offences. 
Mm. And that is, uh, uh, that's an amazing thing to say in 2019. It's quite, well, I'll tell you what's quite key and very important point to make. We're all journalists. And a big part, when you're saying what can we do, a big part of what we can do is not be afraid. Because in 20 years being in this industry, a big part of the reason why this has been able to flourish is fear. Because we, al we always have to tiptoe through the legality mm. of any given incident. Mm -hmm. Some guy can do something like that and come up with a spurious excuse, excuse as to why he wasn't doing what we think he yeah. was doing. And we have to buy it because of the law, even though our eyes are telling us one thing, you know, and people around him are saying one thing, and the players it's directed at are saying one thing. He says this, and we have to go along with that. Now, well, it's an me, important principle. It is an important you know, principle. It until proven guilty. Absolutely, it's an important principle. But that's not to say that we can't challenge it. We can't challenge it and say, this is what we saw. You know, and thankfully, when you say, what can we do? You look at the broadcasters. The broadcasters have been very, they haven't ignored it. They haven't sought to gloss over it. They've been very open in their condemnation of what they saw. Gary Neville particularly. Gary Neville in particular, yeah. to be the case. And I, I just, sorry, mate, one last thing. I think the problem, the reason why we're stumbling so much often is because football doesn't want to do one important thing. It doesn't want to disrupt the game. We all want these solutions to the game, but we don't want to break the game in order to find it. It can't happen. At some level, there's going to be a tipping point. At some level, there is going to be some kind of disruption. You saw it with John Carlos and Tommy Smith when they said, enough, we're making a statement. You see it time and again with Colin Kaepernick in America. Enough. You can't keep coming up with this social injustice and expecting us as black men to get involved in the sport and not disrupt it to make our point. If we want to make progress, we can't do the things we've been doing, because that's the definition of insanity. Mm. Doing it over again and expecting different results. How can we change it? By actually throwing people out of competitions. If we want it for Bulgaria, if we want it for CSK in Moscow, if we want it for some far-flung country in the Ukraine, we have to have it here in this country. Otherwise, we've got no chance. Well, the problem is obvious and worrying. If you look at this weekend, there were five separate incidents concerning racial abuse. That can't continue. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>